I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 15 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Chris Thomas, also known as Space Rogue. I had a chance to catch up with Chris during the recent RSA conference in San Francisco. Chris is a strategist for Tenable with more than two decades of experience. He commands an uncanny ability to link disparate events, read between the lines, and distill complex technical information into readily understandable, accessible, and actionable intelligence. Chris is also a founding member of Loft Heavy Industries, a hacker think tank from the 90s, and has testified before the U.S. Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Government Affairs. He's been interviewed for his security expertise by media organizations such as Wired, MSNBC, CNBC, and even MTV. Before joining Tenable, he created the Hacker News Network and produced the Spider Labs Radio Weekly News Podcast. Right now, he serves as a strategist for Tenable, where he helps clients understand how to apply the unique advantages of continuous monitoring, as well as how to meet compliance and security challenges. I've been following Space Rogue's work since the 90s and delighted to have him on the show. I encourage people to go back and watch the famous testimony from Chris and the rest of Loft from almost 20 years ago. It's scary that so many of the issues they called out then are issues that still exist today. In this episode, we discuss Cyber Squirrel 1, FUD and Cyber War, the growth of the RSA conference, the start of Loft Heavy Industries, Loft's famous testimony before Congress, getting security basics right, and so much more. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. Thanks for listening. And as a quick note for this interview, please bear with some of the background noise. We had to find a kind of unique and interesting open space to do some of these recordings. So please bear with me while there's a little bit of background noise here and there, but the content is still great. Well, uh, Chris or Space Rogue, thanks for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? I'm doing well, thank you. Well, great. We're at the beautiful RSA madness that is RSA. Uh, but one of the things I want to kind of talk to you about was a little bit about the presentation that you gave at ShmooCon uh, about squirrels and how you came up with Cyber Squirrel 1 and what was the kind of the impetus of that? Well, the, uh, the founding idea, the original idea, is actually belongs to Josh Corman and Jericho uh, of attrition.org. They did a presentation at ThoughtCon three years ago, and I think also BrewCon, um, where they talked about cyber war and what they thought it would be and what they thought it wasn't, wouldn't be. And one of the slides of this whole presentation that they did um, detailed a power outage caused by a squirrel in every state in the country over one year. And I was very intrigued by that concept. I thought that, well, that's interesting. So I started a Twitter account and started cataloging all the outages I could find caused by animals. Um, and from that, it's kind of developed into Cyber Squirrel One and the, the website and the stickers and the, the Twitter account. And uh, it's been uh, pretty exciting. Yeah, and, and so what, what should we be more worried about? Squirrels taking out power or foreign actors completely taking down the power grid? <clears throat> well, the, 
the argument is that the foreign actors, as you put them, could disable the entire power grid in the entire country for up to 18 months, which seems a bit fantastical. Um, it's very scary when you hear about it, and there have been studies conducted and says, oh, yes, it is possible. And yeah, it is possible, uh, but it's highly unlikely for any number of reasons. Um, and so to counteract that FUD, as I call it, that fear and uncertainty and doubt, uh, CyberSquirrel One hopes to inject a different voice into the conversation uh, to try to counteract some of that hype that's out there. And what were some of the, we actually pulled a, a bunch of different kind of stats and numbers from the past 30 or so years. What were some of the trends that you were seeing of, you know, uh, instances where animals did have more of a, an effect on the power than some of the so, yeah, attacks. I mean, in researching this, I found a lot of stuff. I, at first, I figured, well, somebody must track all power outages. You know, somebody must be keeping track of this stuff. Um, come to find out, nobody is. Uh, individual power companies sometimes uh, track the outages in their jurisdiction, um, and but nobody in government is tracking anything. The Department of Energy, who you think would do it, only uh, is concerned about outages that last for over an hour and or impact people uh, or and impact people uh, over 50,000 people, which are huge, rather large outages. Um, the data that I have, I think I have three outages that fall into that category. Um, so there are a lot of smaller uh, minor outages that happen all the time. Uh, a lot of times it's by weather, but also by squirrels. Uh, humans cause outages as well. And the fear is, or the extrapolation was what, what happens is that they think, oh, if there's a power outages, then you're, you're risking the, the possibility of what's known as a cascading failure, where a local area cannot handle the, the draw on the grid, and so they pull more power from the neighboring area, which then pours more power from that neighboring area, and then the whole area, goes, everything goes down. Um, there have been a couple of instances in the past that we can look at that this has actually happened. Um, the Northeast blackout of, I'm going to get my dates wrong, but I'm going to guess 2011 and the Southwest blackout of 2013. In both cases, um, there was a small minor issue that then dwarfed into a larger problem and covered a wide area of, of, of land and impacted millions of people. And so your proponents of this cyber attack theory uh, then point to those, those instances and say, look, this is what could happen. If we have one outage, we could have a cascading failure and power could go out all over the place. Well, in those two specific instances that we can look at, uh, the power was only out for like less than 24 hours. Right? This is not a democracy ending event. This is a, uh, an issue that happens basically on a regular basis across this country. We have power outages all the time and they don't impact, uh, have some great impact that puts people at risk. Um, so, it, you know, I, I, part of the, the whole point of the, pro the presentation was that, yeah, this is a problem, and we, we, we are at risk of cyber attack. Uh, there is a potential for a catastrophic failure of the grid, um, but the likelihood of that occurring is very slim. And while we do need to look at securing the electric, the electric infrastructure, we don't need to have the hype levels that we're, that we're seeing. The actual outcomes is probably not as dramatic as has been foretold. And so I'm hoping that CyberSquirrel One can input that extra voice into the conversation. You mentioned something too, that there might be less of an incentive 
for some of these actors to actually try to take us out. And almost a logical thing, well, they kind of need our power on. Right. So the only way that uh, you know what we're doing anymore is by looking at our computer networks, because we do everything on computers. And so if you take out the power, you can't get access to the computers. So that in and of itself is a major deterrent or a major factor in factoring in whether or not there's going to be a power outage by a nation state actor. Um, there, I, there are a couple instances where I could see that that, that would be something that they would want to do. Um, for example, World War III, right? Massive conflict, bullets flying back and forth. We're going to want to take out the power grid. Or they are, and we are too, with theirs. Um, the other possibility I see is, is uh, a, a small localized attack that takes out power for a short time to cover the uh, activities of something else, right? Um, because the power goes out, obviously it impacts our ability to respond to stuff, and, and there are other aspects. And so that I see as a potential issue. And like I said, the risk is real. We do need to focus some uh, resources on securing our grid, but not at the, you know, power is going to be out for a year and a half across the entire country. I, just, I don't see that happening. What do you think drives that type of discussion? You know, like today, for example, the there was the word chaos was used over and over again during the keynote, and it almost, I almost had this concern that they're attempting to create a narrative to build a story to then say, well, we have solutions and, and products to solve all these problems that might not necessarily be there. The security industry uh, or, or sale of security products a lot of times depends on fear. Um, it's very hard to quantify uh, and justify the large amounts of money that that companies are spending on product. Um, and one of the ways that some companies do that is by trying to scare you. Um, and by you know, grabbing onto that fear of you, know, you don't want to be the next OPM, you don't want to be the next target, you don't want to get fired from your job, you, know, you have that fear so you spend your money to buy these products. Mm -hmm. And um, there was an interesting comment in the Microsoft portion of the keynote where there was kind of a call for new cybersecurity uh, independent organization, almost like an anti-nuclear proliferation group that would focus on cyber. Is something like that even realistic? In, in, I, mean, you've, I, I really seen? disagree with the comparison of, quote, cyber to nukes. I don't think the comparison holds up. Um, there is no mad, mutually assured destruction when it comes to cyber. Uh, it's just not a valid comparison in, in my view. Whether or not we need some sort of international, global organization to try to uh, police cyberspace, if you will, maybe. Uh, we definitely need to look at norms between nation states. Um, the Talon Manual just recently came out, which uh, the new version of it, which tries to detail what sort of activities constitutes an act of war versus espionage versus some other action. Um, and, and those are a step in the right direction, because until nations realize what consequences their activities have, then they, they won't curtail those activities appropriately. Um, and right now, we don't know what the, what the consequences are. The United States has reserved the right to respond to a cyber attack with conventional weapons. That's scary, right? Uh, especially when those conventional weapons could include nukes. Uh, so it's good to have those norms in place so that nations know when they uh, want to do something via cyber that they know what the consequences could potentially be. Do you think that the consequences could be kind of uh, cyber offensive capabilities where we'll see more of that, where somebody retaliates with another cyber attack and it stays on that level, or will it go ballistic and go kinetic? Uh, well, I mean, I, I don't know. Let's hope it doesn't go kinetic because, you know, then people die. 
right? And but you mentioned uh, offense, and I think there definitely needs to be a stronger focus, um, not just in the U.S. but worldwide on defense. And defense, I think, is much more important than the offense. Uh, we need to defend ourselves and our networks stronger. Um, we're, I mean, we're not even protecting ourselves against basic stuff. Everybody's worried about APT and zero day and whatnot. We can't even solve the MSO 867 problem. So we really need to look at, at uh, identifying what items we have under our control, uh, what's on our networks, that sort of thing. We need to make sure that our stuff is configured properly and, and patched appropriately. Uh, we need to look at our user access. And these are all basic fundamental things that we've known about for years. You know, this isn't a new problem. Uh, this is the same problems we had 25 years ago when I started doing this. So uh, we definitely need to pay more attention to the defense side of things. Now, kind of looking at it 25 years later, do you find the kind of RSA, whatever RSA has become, almost kind of surreal from where you started? Yeah, it's very surreal. I mean, there are only a couple of companies that were around back then that are still around. Most of them in endpoint, well, they call it endpoint security now. I still call it AV, but antivirus. Um, I mean, when I started, my first RSA was 2000. That was back in, when we had it in San Jose. Um, and it was just starting to come out of being a cryptography conference and into more of a security sales conference. And that's what it is now. It's totally about sales. Um, and the, the booths and whatnot, and just the amount of money on the show floor in the booths is just astronomical. If you stop to add it up, it's just crazy. Excuse me. Um, so it's, it's uh, definitely changed a lot. It's a big industry now. There are very, unfortunately, it's, a, I'll use the word chaos. It's a very chaotic industry. We have companies that come and go on a, on an almost daily basis, it seems. Um, I, I wish I had some stats, but I bet there's probably 50% of the people here weren't here three years ago and won't be here three years from now. Um, so it's, it's, uh, yeah. yeah. And obviously you were, you were, you've kind of had a storied history in the industry, kind of starting with loft back in the day. So kind of describe how that kind of came about, how a think tank, as it was it's been described, really was kind of the impetus compared to what might happen today. I mean, the loft, those, we were all sort of in technology jobs at the time. We all had jobs uh, mostly doing tech support stuff or network administration, systems administration at various companies around Boston. Um, and we all had a lot of computers at home. And so we sort of just rented a space to store all of our excess computers and get it out of our bathtubs. Um, and so from there, though, of course, once we stored it, we started plugging it in and networking it and connecting it. And we would get the products that we would use at work and play with them at the loft. Um, and so we would find there would be either at work or at the loft, we would find there was a problem with these, pro these products. Hey, this, this product has a big security flaw and it's letting people into my network. So as a consumer of this product, which we were at that time, we was like, well, we want to get this fixed. Right, because our job is protect our users, and so we, we need to fix these problems. So we would contact the companies and say, hey, we found a problem in your product. And routinely they would say, well, who else have you told? Like, we haven't told anybody. We're coming to you because it's your product. We want you to fix it. I'm like, okay, we'll take care of it. Just don't tell anybody else. And then nothing would happen. And so that's kind of where the whole full disclosure debate started and responsible disclosure and coordinated disclosure and, and however many other kinds of disclosure you want to have. Um, and so we just started publishing these vulnerabilities. And we, start, we published them because while we, couldn't, we realized we couldn't always fix them, we may have discovered a workaround or some other problem. And we wanted to just let other people who are using these products know, hey, if you're using this product to protect your users, there may be an issue. 
We want you to protect your users as well. So here's the information we found. Uh, here's what we did to try to mitigate this problem. Um, you know, either deploy, if you have this product deployed, you may want to institute similar mitigations, et cetera. So, you know, do you think there was particular advantages you might have had 20 years ago starting in security that you didn't have now? Uh, well, I mean, the advantage was we had seven people all working together for basically a common goal. I, you don't really, I mean, the days, somebody asked me recently, you know, who's the, who's the loft of today? And I'm like, well, I don't think it exists. I don't think you can exist in the current atmosphere. Um, and I, just because there are groups of people around, there are, you know, hacker spaces, if you will. Um, most of them, in my opinion, are, are basically maker spaces, and there's nothing wrong with that, but they're not doing security research. Um, and there really isn't any independent group that's looking at products uh, and trying to find those problems and get them fixed. Yeah, and I know there's been some, you know, we talked about Josh Corman and, and Nick Prococo doing some stuff with I Am The Calvary, and it almost seems like there's a new wave of these new products that we're almost repeating a lot of history again, when now the IoT thing is like, well, we're just deploying again products that haven't been vetted. Do you see that um, being the same issue? Is it going to be resolved quicker now because we have the mindset, or is it? Uh, well, I mean, I've been involved with the I Am The Cavalry Group for a little bit, um, not as much as I was, but the, they, they do good educational work, um, or awareness work, I should say, in that they've actually been able to open a lot of doors in uh, automotive industry and in the, the medical space. Uh, and. As a result, it's gotten people to at least look at and acknowledge the problem. Uh, not exactly solve it, of course, but the awareness is a, is a big part of the battle. And so now you have companies who are at least thinking, or some companies who are at least thinking about security in their products before they deploy them. A long way to go. There's a lot more companies out there building IoT devices that are not secure, that have basic same old hard-coded passwords and other problems that we've known about for 20 years um, that we need to reach and, and make them aware and try to uh, change their mindset. So there's still a lot of work to be done there, yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, when we kind of go back to some of the, the famous loft testimony in, in front of Congress and saying, you know, that where the Internet can be taken down in, in a matter of 30 minutes. But it was really, you know, the quote that I, I pulled from it was interesting from the Post. was saying, you know, what they, what they said in the Post was your computers, uh, they told the panel of senators in 98, are not safe, not the software, not the hardware, not the networks that link them together. The companies that build these things don't care. The hacks continue, they have no reason to care because failure costs them nothing. Um, and it just seems to be almost the same narrative 20 years later. Yeah, it's amazing how, how well that testimony has aged. Um, and like it, you could have the same hearing tomorrow and word for word and it would still be very relevant. Um, so, and and the, the point that you're making that the, there's nothing to hold companies liable who make bad products, that's starting to change a little bit. Um, we've seen the FDA and the FTC take action in finding some companies um, when they uh, issue products that have glaring security holes. I think they found, they find, uh, was it Trend Micro? Not Trend, who, who's uh, the Wi-Fi router? Anyway, they gave them a big fine because they had a, a, a bad, uh, I think it was a hard-coded password, but anyway. Uh, so we're seeing action, uh, some incentive for companies to, to take action in their products before they ship them. Not only from government, but also from the market itself. Um, unfortunately, we're never going to be able to educate the consumer enough to be able to vote with their pocketbook, so to speak, um, because the consumer's always going to just buy the cheapest product. So they're not necessarily going to buy the most secure product. They're going to believe the, the labels on the box. 
There has been talk of, of legislation to try to increase those standards, saying you must do this, this, or this. I'm not sure legislation is the right answer. Um, I would like to look at increasing awareness and education among the companies creating these products, um, increase education and awareness among the, the software coders who are developing these products uh, so that they can create things securely out of the box before they get shipped. Yeah, I've talked to some other folks, and it's almost like the impetus is just to ship, 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 and not think about security built in. Um, but how do we get that culture to change? I mean, where does that start in, in, to really start to matter? Unfortunately, yeah, it's a, it's a long, slow process right now. Um, and I, I think we need to see more action by FTC. We need to see more action by FDA. Uh, and other agencies, um, we need to try to sort of pressure uh, those organizations from inside the industry um, and, and so that they realize that there is an issue that it impacts them to not have the secure product. And kind of step back from the product side of, of you know, IoT and some of those things, but you know, why, why is it do you think that, you know, with all the hype and again, all the things that were, were said about the types of uh, breaches that keep happening over and over again, it's credentials, it's things like that, it's, where, where, what changes do we need to make as an industry, as a culture, to kind of improve our cybersecurity? Why is it the same problems after 30 years? Because we're, we don't care about the non-sexy stuff, right? We always want the blinky lights. Um, we, have this, we have solutions for some of these older problems, right? We know that we need to inventory our networks. We know we need to patch things. We know we need to, to build our networks properly and, and configure the devices on them the right way. We know we need to manage our user accounts and, and disable credentials when users leave, right? We know all these things. We don't do them, right? And I don't know if that's just because uh, a lack of tools or we're not using the right tools uh, or there's some other uh, aspect at play, but I think if we, we focus on those fundamental basics and we force the bad guy to use the zero day in the APT, uh, as opposed to the thousand day or the you know the guessing of the password or whatever, um, and we force them to actually uh, do something difficult that will hopefully reduce uh, what we're seeing out there today. Do you think that could be more of a, a kind of a soft skill problem and lack of leadership, where there's just maybe not the right people organizationally driving that? Maybe. I'm not sure how to answer that one. Um, I, I think again, I think it comes back to awareness. Uh, you walk the floor, there's a lot of blinky lights, a lot of uh, bright lights, a lot of uh, uh, big slogans and big words and scary words, and we're not focusing on the basics. We're not looking at uh, building our security infrastructure in a holistic manner. We're buying point products that don't talk to each other. Uh, and these are things that, that we really need to focus on as organizations and try to build a, a security platform that works across everything that we have, as opposed to, I'm going to buy this one product that solves this one little problem, and it's not going to talk to anything else that I have. So I spend all this money, and it sits in a silo, and it doesn't really help me at all. So do you think that, in one of the other things that came with the keynote was consolidation, like maybe enterprises buying less security products, maybe simplifying it, is, is that too elegant of an easy solution? I don't know how you would, like, simplify, it sounds good, um, but every organization is different and every organization has different uh, risks and, and different network topologies and stuff. So, yeah, you can just say, oh, we'll simplify, we won't buy all these other products, but you still have the problem. So you still need to solve that problem. So, I mean, this goes back to what I said before about having a basic platform that you can build from 
And so if you need that point social security product, you can buy it and solve that problem, but have it feed its data back into uh, your, your single pane of glass, if you will, so that you don't have to look at all these different dashboards and suffer dashboard fatigue from looking at eight different products. And you can look at one product instead of eight. Yeah. And I guess let's kind of pivot to that. So tell me a little bit about your role with Tenable now and what you're doing with them. Uh, so I've been working at Tenable now for about three and a half years. Um, work as a strategist for them. It's a great company. Uh, I think they have great technology. And if I didn't think that, obviously, I probably wouldn't be there. Um, but I'm sure everybody says that about their company. So the, the um, you know, I, I try to hopefully help them. Uh, I look at the market and the trends that are going on and, and, and help them sort of navigate where things are heading. Okay, where do you think some of the market is heading, say, a year or two years from now? It's, it, that's a good point. I mean, a good question because it's, 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 a, it's a hard read. And that's kind of the reason why I come out here to RSA every year so I can sort of talk to people and figure out what's going on and say, okay, this is a trend and this isn't a trend and this was the trend last year. So a couple of years ago, the big thing everybody was talking about was threat intelligence. But nobody really had a really clear definition of threat intelligence. And the market has decided that threat intelligence equals IP reputation and malware signatures, which in my view is not threat intelligence. Um, and so this year's buzzwords seem to be artificial intelligence and machine learning. Yeah, exactly. So what does that mean? What exactly is AI and ML? If I just put it in the cloud, is that AI? Some people seem to think that is true. Um, so again, I think the market's going to have to settle down and clearly define what those terms are. I don't think they've been defined for the market yet. There are technical you know, definitions for both of those terms, but I haven't actually seen any products yet that really have integrated machine learning and artificial intelligence into their products. Fancy algorithms, sure. In the cloud, sure. But is it really AI and ML? Maybe not. So that's, it's, that's a marketing thing, though. Yeah, it seems like no matter what, you, you know, you're going to need some human to tune that. You can't take the, the human element out of the AI or ML equation. Not yet. Not yet. Uh, I mean, it's just not advanced enough. But it's, it's the buzzword du jour. Do you think if, if more of the basic issues got stomped down, where things were kind of configured and maybe controlled better, there would be the ability to do that because there'd be less fire drills? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, and let's go back to my other point. If you focus on the basics and you get that stuff squared away in your, in, in your organization, you know where all your stuff is. And when I say all your stuff, I don't just mean your laptops and desktops. I also mean your virtual machines. How, how many containers you have? Where are your mobile devices? Uh, do you have people in HR department using Dropbox without permission, you know, or whatever? Knowing everything that's going on in your network. And you have that, and then you make sure that your network is deployed correctly, you know, and you, everything's configured correctly. And you're, you're up on your patches, and you're managing your patches properly, and your, your users are, have the right credentials, and they're aged out properly when they leave your organization. Once you handle all of that, then you can go look at all these other funky things that are like cutting edge and stuff. Um, because then you'll have the resources to be able to develop, to devote to those things, um, as opposed to just focusing on fire drills all the time. Right, right. Uh, what, one of the things we did touch on before though, is that, is that you know, there was this kind of continued visibility of cybersecurity over the past year. There was the DNC, there was uh, other things. I mean, it's just been nonstop. But the problem is, uh, in my fear, what I've been seeing is while there's a lot of discussions, it doesn't sound like maybe we're getting a lot of the right stories out there, meaningful discussions. Are you feeling the same way, having oh, been here for a while? Uh, let's take the DNC, for example. Um, so the DNC breach was a really basic breach. It was one email account, from what I understand, or a couple email accounts. Um, 
uh, Gmail in particular that didn't have two-factor, uh, and it was like a guess of a password, and they were correct, and so they got the email. But what the public has heard is that there was uh, election hacking, right? And that's the term that's in the press. And so when the, the, the people hear election hacking, they assume that it was the actual physical voting machines that got breached, and that's not what happened. Um, and as far as I know, there's no evidence of any actual voting machine being tampered with, uh, cyber or otherwise. Um, but the DNC breach has sort of clouded that entire issue and has made it difficult and is both positive and negative aspects to that because, uh, one, people aren't actually getting the real story, but at the same time, they're hopefully becoming more aware that these are problems and that they may be at risk and be the next target. Do you think that there could be now um, an opportunity to try to get the right things done from the government side, or are we in a kind of perilous state right now where it's a lot of noise about it, particularly with foreign it's, adversaries? Yeah, it's hard to determine what the government's going to do right now, especially since we're only a, a few weeks into the new administration, and um, there's been talk of a new cyber executive order coming out, and there's been a couple of drafts floating around. Um, not really sure where the government's going to stand on those, those sorts of topics. Um, OPM was a big wake-up call, but then we had DNC breach uh, after that, so I don't know. Yeah. And obviously, uh, you've had your, your history with, with the government and testifying with them, but is it, what can we do as a community to get more involved with the government to maybe steer them in the right direction? Oh yeah, I, I think it's, it's important for uh, the industry, the security industry, the hacker community, um, anybody else who's even tangentially involved to try to get involved in government, right? Uh, is still, uh, people still want to hear your voice and whether that means you just happen to write an email or call your, your elected representative and, and say, hey, this is how I feel about this topic or if you find organizations like I Am The Cavalry or other organizations that are involved and try to volunteer or just say, hey, I want my voice heard. Um, I think those are important things to do and as we move forward, I think those voices are going to become more and more important. Excellent. Well, Chris, I thank you for your time today. I really thank appreciate you. it. No problem. Right. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.